Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you, the listener, can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Random Productions, which is me. So if you like how we sound and are thinking about starting a podcast, reach out to me. I am easy to find. Pod for Good can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. So if you enjoy what we do here, please make sure to subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and then we will read it on this podcast. So, and that's the last time I'm going to say podcast, hopefully, for at least five minutes. I am, as always, your chief philanthropod and class clown for hiding my winnings in the walls, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod and class clown for elite pettiness, Chris Miller. In this episode, we are talking with Victor Lukerson, a journalist and author of the book Built from the Fire. We talked to Vic about his book Built from the Fire his upcoming community reading tour in Tulsa, and the petty hero we all need, Lula Williams. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Victor on the podcast today. Victor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Are you enjoying our only 90-ish degree temperature days we've had the past couple days? You know, I actually was just out of town the last few days. So I missed the latest Aww. heat wave, so I'm, I'm glad about that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine on your tour, you've gone to lots of other also hot places. Um, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Alabama, so I'm used yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. And a lot yeah. of my tours are in the deep south, so you know, yeah. you have to get used to it down there. Yeah, you just do. It's just, it's just hot. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, so Victor, before our listeners, you released a book, was it six months ago? About three months, actually. Wow, it's been three months. You've been all over the country um, right. touring um, built, built from the Fire? That's right. Built from the Fire, yes. Built from the Fire. About obviously about the Tulsa race massacre, but also sort of like the book is mostly sort of a history told from the perspective of like one particular family, right? At least focused on one particular family. Yeah. So the book Built from the Fire kind of walks through the history of Green, the Greenwood District um, through the eyes of several families, but most prominently the Goodwin family. They own the black newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle um, in Greenwood. They've been on Black Wall Street since 1914. And so this book kind of starts with them in the Jim Crow South trying to escape white supremacy in the, what was no, then known as the Eden of the West. So I follow this family to Greenwood, see them helping to build this community up, um, see through their eyes and others how the neighborhood was destroyed, but then also how the good ones helped to rebuild it, help their neighbors rebuild. And then, you know, we continue from there on to all this unfold over the last 100 years. So for me, it was really important to write a narrative about this community that wasn't just about those two days of the race massacre, but about the whole 118 years of uh, Greenwood history. So um, this is a, Funny technical question. So when, if Greenwood was called the Eden of the West, right, the Eden of the East would just be the biblical Eden, right? There's not, <laughs> there's not an Eden of the East as well, right? I mean, according to Book of Mormon, it was in Jackson County, that's, Missouri. That's true. So that's, that, true. That, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so I know from watching many of your interviews that there was so much data and like information that you read while putting this together and I know like you went into the Red Cross files and all these kind of things. What interests me as a quasi-trained historian is like, how did you visually, from reading all these different personal stories, data from organizations and whatnot, build a, how did you build a narrative of a, an over 100 year span of a place? Like, how did you, how did you visualize that in your head? Yeah, so I mean, there's a few sort of tools of the trade, I guess. First thing I should do is shout out David Grand, who's written his own very famous book about Oklahoma history. Um, I was listening to David Grand on a podcast like four or five years ago. And he was explaining how when he wrote 
Kills of the Flower Moon, he had all this incredible amount of research and he basically created like a database. And so he had for every single person or place or idea, he had all these facts assembled. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. That makes sense in my brain too. And so I basically had a um, Google Doc um, and it had like basically spreadsheets for every single person in the book. So for example, I mentioned the Goodwin family. Um, Ed Goodwin was a family patriarch and I had like a Ed Goodwin spreadsheet. And so every little scrap of information I found about Ed Goodwin, whether it was like a quote he gave in 1955 or something somebody else told me about him or whatever, I just put it all in this spreadsheet. And then I would be able to go back when I was writing an Ed Goodwin scene and sort of say, what, what, what do I have in the mix about this guy? You know what I mean? And so those spreadsheets really helped me to um, have some raw material, I guess. So, I mean, the challenge when you're writing a book like mine is that you have to have a lot, you have to have so much raw material that's fact to be able to create the something that's creative and sort of elevates towards the sensation of fiction without being untrue. And so really sort of collating all those random, all those raw facts where I had almost like, it's too much, you know what I mean? Um, I remember when I was a journalism student in college, we had a sports illustrator writer who was one of our professors. And he said something that really kind of blew my mind at the time, which was that, oh, when I write a magazine feature for Sports Illustrated, I only use 10% of my reporting in the piece. And back then I was like, okay, I talked to two people and then I put all this stuff in my, my article and then I'm done. And so when I realized that writing is really like um, a tip of the iceberg kind of thing in terms of what you use, that was something that really stuck with me back then and definitely even more so with a book like this. You just have to have lots and lots of raw material. Um, so to answer your question, it's, it's spreadsheets. That's, that's spreadsheets, the Spreadsheets, all right. Yeah. One of Chris's favorites. Yeah, yeah. The answer to everything are spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I get it from a database perspective because yeah. you have to you have to – you have to keep information, not in your head, but somewhere where you know it is when you need to pull it, yeah. right? Well, uh, one thing I think I always thought was interesting with Greenwood is it's kind of a microcosm of the history of, you know, the black American experience. Like everything that white people or the government have done negatively to black people happened along the way. So you, you know, whether it's lynching, massacres, redlining, you know, weaponized codes, like everything that urban renewal. And I know you talk about a lot of those things. How do you kind of uh, approach that when there is so much negativity there and, and continue to try to find positives in the experience as well? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the first solution to that issue is focusing on the green perspective on things. You know, I think there's been earlier books about the race massacre that are almost kind of like both sides-ish. Not necessarily that they're defending what happened, what white people did, but it's like, let's dive into the psychology of like Richard Lloyd Jones or like the white mob or whatever. And for me, at least, I was like, I don't really, I'm not that interested in their psychology, you know? Yeah. I think to your point, the dynamics that unfolded here are so systematic in our country that I don't really need to have a deep psychological dive on what Richard Lloyd Jones thought when he wrote or helped orchestrate the um, Tulsa Tribune article that helped spark the race massacre. Um, so for me, it's like, okay, if we're actually going to go through this from a person's, a black person's perspective in Greenwood, you're naturally going to find out about people who are strategic, um, have a lot of ingenuity, figure out ways to work together. And so I think when you see people just naturally because they want to survive sort of um, fighting back against those forces, it creates a much more um, dynamic perspective on who they were as opposed to sort of people who are just sort of being like, thrown about by the currents of hate of, of history or quote unquote systemic racism. I didn't want my book to feel like these people were just sort of like in this like raft being bandied about by systemic racism. I mm -hmm. think they have a lot more autonomy than that. And I wanted to really bring that forward in the pages of the book. Yeah. I know you also talk about how like you talk about these people as people as not like avatars for the 
perfect historical figures who were, you know, destroyed by a larger entity. Like some of these people, like the, like the, the, the people involved around like the gambling that was happening in Greenwood. Like, and you, um, I've seen you talk about this in person. I know you've talked about it on, in interviews. It just, it is great to me to read a historical thing that actually treats the people as flawed individuals, you know, no matter what, the, whatever ended up happening to them or whatever, like people were like, so those things were like, there are laws, but like, some of, those, some of the laws are there not to actually protect people, but to stop people, stop industries from forming and like how like where wealth comes from, especially in the early 20th century, where a lot of it, no matter who you are, your wealth didn't normally usually come from a great place. Right. Right. Um, did you have like other books or stories that you sort of used as like a catalyst for this? For, like, for example, like one of the best historical nonfiction books I've ever read is called Manhunt, right? Mm-hmm. The it's the 12 day chase for Lincoln's killer. And it is written like a thr- like, like like a thriller movie. It's and everything in it is true. It's just written so well and about a historical fact that we all know that we think we all know so much about. So like were there were there talks or books or podcasts or even articles that you were like, yes, I want mine to be in this vein. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I would say there are probably two major works, one I read before I started writing, one I read during that really influenced me. Um, before I started the book, I read The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which is a narrative nonfiction book about the Great Migration that follows three black families um, on their journey from the Deep South to the North and uh, the West. And so that book does an amazing job of layering human experiences with historical events and just the way that it's able to sort of bringing you along through this gripping story while also giving me all the historical context about all the obstacles these folks faced. Um, I just really love the way she approached that. So that was kind of my main influence before I started. And then in the middle of the writing process, uh, I actually have a book club with my girlfriend. And so we read uh, Paradise by Toni Morrison, maybe three years ago now, I guess. And that book's really interesting because it's basically about a fictionalized Greenwood almost. Um, it's about the all back town in Oklahoma that it didn't actually go through like a race massacre, but it is a city that's it's a community that's been very scarred by the forces of white supremacy. And you sort of see that playing out there. And in that book, a lot of the characters are very, very, very flawed. Um, they have a lot of challenges they're facing. And the book is not very preoccupied. Like some of the characters they're preoccupied with, power of wealth as a form of absolution, but the narrator, Toni Morrison is not, you know what I mean? She's kind of puncturing that mythology in a lot of ways. And so that was really that was really eye opening for me to see how a book that was fiction could kind of like mm-hmm. touch on a larger truth about, you know, who we all are as people and how we value ourselves in relation to money and wealth. You know, I think the book I've written certainly has some like critiques of black capitalism, and that was important for me to place into this story about Black Wall Street. Um, so I think those are probably the two books I read that really influenced me the most for sure. So what what drew you initially to Greenwood and this and made you want to write this write a story about it? I think for me, it was really kind of like filling in the gaps that I feel like were left when I was learning about black history in school. You know, I know when I was a kid, I really had this sense that black people kind of disappeared from history between um, the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. It's kind of like there's a hundred year gap where just don't get mentioned. And the Rosa Parks refused to stand up and they were kind of back in the game. And, uh, you know, I had a friend, I was living in Atlanta before this, and I had a friend who kind of felt similarly because he was talking to me at lunch one day about how he didn't want to see the film 12 Years a Slave because black folks are always being depicted as being brutalized in pop culture histories. And so my friend was just saying, like, I'm really tired of seeing us being 
brutalized as slaves or sick with dogs in the civil rights movement. Where are some other stories about who we used to be? And so I asked my friend if he had ever heard of Black Wall Street. He had not. And this was in 2017, actually. So that was before Watchmen had come out, before Donald Trump visited Tulsa. Back then, I'm not sure how long y'all have been in Tulsa or immersed in this, but as someone from the outside, if you Googled Black Wall Street in 2017, there was like almost nothing on the internet about it. And so like literally if I had Googled this in 2017 and there had been like a good New York Times feature, I would have never written anything about this. I would have said, oh, you know, it's covered. Like, mm-hmm. no one, I don't need to be redundant to this. Which is funny now because there's been a thousand things written. So <laughs> now I have to like argue for why what I did is not redundant. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of like grand irony there. But for me, it was really about, um, I think, introducing a historical narrative for black people that was about something besides trauma. Um, and so that gets back to the challenge of the story of this book, which is that, you know, the reason this place lingers in American history is because of the traumatic event that occurred. But I wanted to sort of open the aperture beyond those two days and really sort of explain Greenwood um, for all of its flaws and triumphs um, over the course of its whole history. Well, and you mentioned pop culture. I mean, obviously, um, the depiction of the race massacre in Lovecraft Country as well as as Watchmen. I know you had some issues with specifically how they decided to depict that. Yeah, that was really interesting for me because... I'm a freelancer for The New Yorker sometimes, and I actually wrote two pieces for them about Watchmen. Um, the first piece was about sort of a artistic critique, I guess. I love the show. I think the show, what the show did yeah. in terms of the way it was written and, um, you know, filmed and the themes, I thought it was really sophisticated. So there was sort of that interpretation of it, which was, oh, it was a great show. But then I went back and looked at kind of like the production of it, and I came to understand that the Greenwood figures who are depicted in the in the story, because um, Watchmen takes place in a fictionalized Tulsa after the race massacre. Um, the Greenwood figures who are depicted in the story, the true-to-life people were not really involved with um, the history at all. You know, they were not involved in being able to have their say about how these characters were going to be. They were not compensated. Um, and by talking to them, those folks, I realized that they were really hurt by that. You know what I mean? Yeah. If people watch the show, they'll see that uh, the Jim and Theaters feature really prominently on Watchmen but the descendants of Lula Williams, who owned the Jewland Theater, had no involvement in the show whatsoever. Wow. And so I think for me, it was really about um, maybe exposing a little bit more about how the sausage is made on yeah. pop culture, yeah. specifically pop, pop culture, black history. Because often black folks are sort of expected to offer up their trauma and their history and their stories for like mm-hmm. American entertainment or education without really getting anything in return for it. Right. So I just wanted to be able to like open up a space for a critique of that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And... You know, it's also the show did what a lot of pop culture does, where they use a cartoonish version of the KKK, right? It's the KKK is always the the pointy hat, the the menacing coming at you with the torch version of the KKK. And then as we've all experienced in Tulsa, that's not really the most dangerous version of the KKK. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um and that was something that, something I definitely tried to deconstruct in the book. Um, I think one of the most valuable primary documents we have here in Tulsa is a 1928 Klan roll that the University of Tulsa has. And like, mm-hmm. I got a hold of during my research. And so basically every single white person I found in my research, I would always compare them to the cake. I can compare them into the role. Like, let's see if we get a hit here. And some of those hits were judges in Tulsa, police officers in Tulsa, one of the city councilmen in Tulsa, all were members of the KKK real estate developers. So all these people were members of this of the Ku Klux Klan. And so for me, as I sort of saw that, I was like, oh, this isn't just about like guys in white robes and funny hats. It's kind of, it's like an old boys club. 
It's a political, it's a political group. You know, it's a way to exert power over people, not only through terrorism, um, but through systems that they create for themselves. And so that's something I really, really tried to emphasize when I talk about this book and the story of Greenwood. Like the KKK was one of many systems that were created to preserve power for white people and specifically the white elite um, to the disadvantage of black folks. Like looking back, I was just quickly uh, perusing your Ringer author page. And most of your stories there are about technology. You were sort of, you were a technology writer. Unfortunately, I was, yes. <laughs> was that... Was that a decision that was made for you, or is that something you were actually interested in at the time? This was, you know, 2018, 2019. Uh, I kind of fell into that. Um, after I graduated college in 2012, I got a job offer to work at Time Magazine, and the job offer, was, job offer was to be a business reporter. And if you're a kid from Alabama, and somebody says, do you want to go live in New York City and work at Time Magazine? You say, yes, of course. I love business. I love tech. <laughs> and so I just kept saying that enthusiastically for like six years. <laughs> Uh, but the entire time I was writing about tech and business, um, I definitely want, I, I had more interest in writing about um, national affairs, um, sort of issues affecting black people in America and history, you know. But I, now I am glad that I um, wrote about tech for that time period because it was a pretty interesting time in that I was basically a tech reporter in the period in which we went from like worshiping Steve Jobs to like hating Mark Zuckerberg. That's kind of like the window of time which I covered tech. Yeah. And so I think to have been covering that industry in a period in which questioning really powerful entities became just like part of my job. And somebody to prepare me to come somewhere like Tulsa and be able to question powerful entities, both historically and currently. So mm-hmm. um, I don't regret my time as a tech reporter, even though I, there's not too many of those bylines I'd want to be sharing these days. <laughs> what know? about why The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time will always be the best game ever? I saw that and I was like, that <laughs> is a great title. I actually <laughs> agree. Yeah, I and like why, like why it will always be considered the best game ever is why is why you're talking about like the the online Metacritic aspect of how games are rated these days. But it is a fantastic game. Yeah. So like anyway, great headline. If you know, even though the headline was probably written by somebody else. Um, for me, technology and how we tell history are sort of always intertwined, right? Like it it is impossible to learn anything about the Holocaust, for example, while also not being accidentally taught about the technology of war and the technology mm. of what was happening in the in the 30s and 40s, right? And so there were technological parts of the of the race massacre that also were like small tidbits and a much larger story, but like the first use of like incendiary bombs and like all these. To me, technology technology always always plays a part in whatever historical story you're telling. And so I was just wondering if there was if that technology background did sort of in some weird way help you write this book. If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of stuffy McLawyer pants, Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone... 
it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pod for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pod for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Other than your massive use of Google Sheets. <laughs> I'm glad you intuitively knew it was Google Sheets, not Excel. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's 2023, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, I think that Maybe less technology. So I used to be like, I was kind of a media reporter for them too. So I wrote a lot about like Netflix and Spotify and the way that media distribution changed things. And so I think that aspect of it probably played a larger role. Um, you know, the Oklahoma Eagle is actually a very central um, part of the book. The black newspaper in Greenwood is almost like its own character in the book. And so I think that I was very interested in capturing like, what does it mean to have a media institution um, distributing all this information about the community, whether it's really vital stuff, because after the race massacre, um, the Oklahoma Sun, which is the predecessor to the Eagle, actually was the place where people could like look up if their um, loved ones were missing or not in Greenwood. So like something that urgent and vital to like the gossip column that was in the Eagle called Scoop and the Scoop that <laughs> Ed one's wife wrote. Um, and so I think maybe that's the sort of um, lens through which my previous reporting really came through, because the book definitely has sort of a media critique going on throughout it throughout it and so i think that aspect of probably is the most that i got from having covered netflix and spotify and those kind of companies for several years well i have to uh bring up the recurring villain of our podcast which is uh i-244 yes the the highway Mm -hmm. and i-244 that was the that the community was not able to recover from that and urban renewal the way they were able to recover from so many other things that had happened to them. Yeah, so I actually dive really deep into all that in the book. There's probably about four or five chapters that kind of depict that. And it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to write five chapters about urban renewal. It's more so that, oh, if you're going to depict Greenwood between like 1955 and 1980, you have to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Because it took that long for urban renewal to actually play out. So, you know, why, why were they un- unable to recover as effectively? I mean, part of it's because the massacre happened over two days and Urban Renewal literally is like 25 years. And so I think that I have a chapter in the book called A Slower Burn that kind of just tries okay. to convey like how slow and insidious that process was. So I think that's part of what made it challenging. I think also um, something I do in the book is layer the Urban Renewal story on top of the Civil Rights Movement story. And so those are in some ways almost like countervailing forces. If on one hand, we have this huge movement that's centered around entering white spaces because, you know, we're Americans too, and we deserve equal rights. And then we have this other movement that's going on that's about like completely reshaping, in some cases, destroying black spaces. Like I think it's really hard. And I thought of some folks who are from that era that's really hard to keep your eye on both those balls at the same time. And so I think that, and also institutionally, groups like, then LBCP were much more focused on the first issue. And so I think the urban renewal um, arc is almost like this bait and switch kind of thing mm-hmm. where there are so many leaders who are focused in a different direction. And then the local and state federal government comes in and says, we have this really positive idea for your community. 
I think it's kind of easy to um, maybe buy into that a little bit more than people should have. And so I think for me, I really try to avoid, like you said, the villain of your podcast was oh, funny, yeah. but I try to avoid portraying villains in my work because I don't think, you know, no one's going to come twirling a mustache. Well, maybe Elon Musk would, but <laughs> no one's going to come twirling a mustache saying like, this is my evil scheme, take over your land. Right. They're gonna come telling you like, "Hey, this is gonna be good for you and me. It's a win-win." Until you don't know, you know what's really going on. And so, in the book, I try to portray how it happened in a more nuanced way, so that people could kind of see, "Oh, this is how this dynamic's playing out again today," versus something that felt a little bit more cartoonish. Because mm-hmm. if they think it's cartoonish, like the KKK thing, if it's cartoonish, you're removed from it. Right. But if you can see yourself or people you know in these figures, then it's easier to see how it relates to your own experiences. Yeah. If, if a listener to this podcast wants to draw I-244 with a twirly mustache, I'd be 100% on board <laughs> for that. I mean, I think we talk about I-244 so much because it's such a clear indication of where, like, the slow the slow speed of the way the government does things and the movements of people in local things sort of run into each other at the exact same time, right? Because, like, literally, we're having conversations about studying, removing I-244, while at the same time, something that got passed 10 years ago that put in some money for I-244 to be like repaired in some way are just happening now, right? And so we're like, why are you fixing a highway that we don't even want? And it's because like things move at different speeds, right? Where it looks like a lot of change is happening very quickly in American society Mm -hmm. where that's because people people forget or didn't notice the, you know, 15, 20 year long campaign, you know, to do a thing like the same sex marriage. Like it seemed like that happened very quickly even though it had been like a 30-year fight, right? Yeah. And so I think we just use I-244 as an example of that, but it is a villain. Anyway. Yes. Um, I'm not a fan, so. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things I know that comes up is that you dive into is redlining. And it's one of those things that people think of like, oh, this is something that al- happened a long time ago. People who, are, uh, you know, are against reparations are like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't me. That's not something that's happening now. It wasn't related to me. Well, just within the last like week or something like that, uh, a, there was a bank in Oklahoma that had to settle a uh, redlining charge with the federal government. I mean, it's this is stuff that, as much as we think of it as history, it's stuff that's still happening right now. Yeah, yeah, that was really something that was important for me in the book, I think, was to uh, connect a lot of those dots. You know, I had an event here my book launch event was at the Greenwood Cultural Center here in Tulsa in May. And it's very kind of a very surprising experience for me. I was really nervous. Uh, I don't like public speaking. And I went up there and I was explaining like redlining. And then like the crowd like, erupted in cheers. And that's not really what I expected to happen because it's like a pretty wonky answer I gave. I was like, yeah. And I think part of that was because I was providing some kind of context and explanation for why North Tulsa is the way it is now, you know? And so when you have that context and explanation people can't drive through there and say, oh, this is to follow those people who live there. Um, so I think that exploring those dynamics is really important because it essentially undercuts a lot of sort of knee-jerk racist reactions to why some communities look the way they look today. Um, so that was really important for me, I think. And I think that's part of why, you know, actually I remember another one guy here in Tulsa, like a young guy, maybe a little younger. I don't really know him, but I saw him at one of these events here in Tulsa. And he was like, oh, man, I read your book. It helped me, like, understand my neighborhood a little better. And that was really powerful to me. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't, like, a famous academic or somebody who was going to, like, help me sell more books or something like that. He was, just, like, a guy here in Tulsa who said that the way I explained the history of his community 
made things add up for him a little bit more. And I think yeah. that's really powerful because it kind of unlocks for you, I think, a different perspective on not only how things were, but how they could change in the future. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and I know you've also talked about not just redlining, but the a lot of the rhetoric that is going on now, the parallels between what it was like prior to the race massacre, you know, and how it feels like, you know, leading up to whether it was January 6th or the racially motivated shootings, like the one we just had in Jacksonville, that there is a strong correlation. In some ways, it feels like we're going backwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, in the book, I spend a lot of time... um, in early Oklahoma politics, like how did Oklahoma become a state and sort of this sort of dark path Oklahoma took from being like somewhat egalitarian in like late 1800s with, for example, indigenous people having a lot of autonomy and black folks having a lot of autonomy in those tribes to literally importing Jim Crow from the deep south and making out the first law the state passed, segregating train cars. And so I started spending a lot of time in the book kind of explaining that 100 years ago. And then I fast forward to the last several years and I spent a lot of time sort of back in Oklahoma politics. So I shadowed um, Representative Regina Goodwin um, for several years in the Capitol, and I kind of walked through all the obstacles she faced, pursuing things like reparations, um, police reform. And that argument is really interesting because the first couple years I followed her, she was kind of like on the offense. You know, she had these plans to like reform the police and all this kind of stuff. And then she kind of gets on the defense because like post-George Floyd, um, Oklahoma Republicans really sort of Try passing a lot of really extreme laws, you know, limiting um, what we can learn in schools, um, limiting the ability to protest. I mean, putting protesters' lives in danger. And so I think that, in some sense, reminded me of the pre-21 era, where black folks went from feeling they had opportunity in this space to just being put on their back foot, you know what I mean? And so we're definitely in that in that back foot phase right now, um, which is um, scary when you think about how things play out at the time. But I do think that Waking more people up is probably the thing we really need to do right now because I think everybody's very politically exhausted these days because of all this unfolded the last several years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think finding ways to like wake more people up is probably the way to avoid um, a similar outcome. Because there were a lot of people in Tulsa in 1921 who were kind of like on the sidelines, you know what I mean? White people who were just sort of like, well, that was just between like the, the, the miscreants of Greenwood and the white trash, which is not even what happened. But I think there's a really, often there's a really easy way to, people to politically disengage. I think right now is the time we got to figure out a way to get more people, more people politically engaged for sure. Mm-hmm. Are you, and I, I hate to, I hate to ask this, the question, cause like I, I wouldn't be able to answer the question myself. I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about race relations in this country after writing this book and after going on tour for this book? This is what I'll say. And this is a big change I had in my perspective. I think maybe it would have happened anyway, but the book accelerated it. So I think when I first graduated college, I graduated, or I went to college the year Obama was elected. So the first person I voted for was Obama. And so that really kind of shifted my perspective, I think, to maybe imagine that America could be on like a linear track towards progress. You know, like, oh, okay, well, if my parents grew up in the Jim Crow South, and I know all about the experiences they had, and then I get to vote for the first black president, maybe we're on this trajectory of like, we're going to keep improving as a country. Uh, obviously that got obliterated when Donald Trump got elected and a lot of crazy things happened. But as I was learning, like as around the time the Trump era was unfolding, I was also reading about the success of Greenwood and this like black prosperity they had. Now that was totally dismantled and not only in Greenwood, but in cities across America. 
So that's kind of really, I guess, opened my eyes. Like, oh, like history is actually very cyclical. And like, I don't think you really get that impression of history when you're a student in a general high school. And so I think that um, really getting a better perspective on that, I don't think it made me more pessimistic because it kind of made me realize that there are people who had already gone through these challenges before. So, you know, it's not really that things are worse. I had no, it's just, I was oblivious to the dynamics of how the country works. Now I know. So why would I be pessimistic about that? The country was the same either way. I just didn't know what was going on. So I think it's actually good that I know what's going on because now I feel better armed to um, resist the forces that might be trying to um, pull us back in some ways. Well, let's, let's, jump back to a little bit more of a positive side of things because i feel like we're going down going down a pod for sad a little bit um but so in all the research that you did who were some of the like really interesting people you learned about what are some really great stories that you learned yeah so i think that as a journalist i was really struck by aj smitherman um aj smitherman was the editor of the tulsa star which was the first black newspaper in greenwood and he just, like, didn't take shit from anybody. <laughs> like, uh, he was just that guy. You know, every every week, the Tulsa Star would have a slogan on the front page. Um, just, like, a different little phrase to capture the mood of the times. And I remember one week, the phrase was, uh, you push me, I'll push you. That was kind of the attitude that um, he and a lot of other folks in Greenwood had towards uh, white racial violence. But what I really appreciate about Smitherman, too, is, like, he was just, like, so principled. And, for example, as, like, white Tulsa was sort of tacitly endorsing mob violence in all kinds of different ways. Um, Smitherman was a guy saying, whether somebody's black or white, we need to have we need to have laws and justice. You know, give these people their day in court. Don't take them from uh, jail cells and lynch them. So I really loved Smitherman's tenacity mixed with his principledness. Um, I think those are just like two traits any journalist should have. So love A.J. Smitherman. Um, Lula Williams was a great person to research. Uh, Lula Williams owned the Dreamland Theater before the race massacre. And that was a big, I guess learning about her was a big surprise for me because I had in my head that Lula was essentially John Williams' partner, potentially maybe his sidekick. Um, There's a very famous photo of um, this black couple in a car with a kid in the back of Greenwood. That's Lula, Mm -hmm. John, and their son, WD. In the photo, John is driving, Lula's in the passenger seat, and it kind of reinforces a lot of things people assume about the patriarchy, I guess. However, I just learned in my research that Lula actually owned the G-Man Theater outright and even like went to the court and like filed an affidavit that said, I own this, he owns nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like this very kind of petty document I found. <laughs> That's awesome. And I love that for her. Yeah. So when I found that, I was like, oh, you're like a major figure in this story now because I love that you were this per- you had this personality. Yeah. And so I really love being able to depict that. And on my tour, a lot of people have sort of like gravitated towards her mm-hmm. um, and what she represented about uh, female autonomy in that era. So then those are a couple of the folks that I really enjoyed um, learning about from that era. One of the folks I didn't get to write much about that I would love to t- tell more of his story is uh, Alfonso Williams. Um, he was a Greenwood entrepreneur. He owned a cab company. Um, he owned the T-Town Clowns, Greenwood's minor league baseball team. Um, he was also like a notorious uh, like numbers kingpin, gambling kingpin in Greenwood. And folks here have told me these oral histories about like working for Alfonso Williams as numbers runners and going into his like backroom office where there's like shoeboxes shoe of different denominations stacked to the ceiling. And I've even heard stories that when they tore down a lot of buildings in Greenwood for urban renewal, there's literally cash in the walls that was hidden <laughs> by like some of the hustlers. And so that's like a story and a vivid richness of a community that um, I love about Greenwood. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity for more stories like that to be told about this neighborhood for sure. Yeah, it makes it feel a lot more three-dimensional 
because what we get, usually get, I think you already talked a little bit about this, is that, you know, some a perfect idyllic version of Greenwood and then destruction and then maybe another perfect idyllic version of it. And it, it makes it feel less real than having having these sort of nuanced views of, of the people and the community to make it feel like a real place that you could experience. Yeah, definitely. That was my goal to make it feel real. And even with um, the families I profiled, I wanted to feel real. So like with the Goodwin family, who is sort of the centerpiece of the book, I did a lot of work to like understand their internal dynamics as a family. And so, for example, their family left Greenwood in the 1940s and moved to this farm outside the city. And so, you know, dad wanted to sort of explore what does it mean to have like, to be like a truly successful black family. But now you're like removed from your own neighborhood. And so the book kind of probes that a little bit. Um, you know, members of their family dealt with substance abuse and other issues. So the book kind of dives into what that, how that impacts people, not only that person, but the people around them. And so I think those kinds of stories led you, the reader, relate more to the people you're reading about. Because again, they're not just these like superheroes that are at a distance. They're, you know, people just like us. Mm. Um, not to be trite about it, but I do think that's sort of the core of um, any engaging literary work. And so I tried to bring that to this nonfiction too. I mean, it also makes, and this is something I got into a lot in Holocaust education, is like the difference between talking about people as victims and talking about people as targets, right? Because victims takes away their agency and it takes away anything else about them, right? Targets, making them targets instead of victims, like changes how you view a person. Mm. It's like the way our language works reframes how we look at people. Right. Um, is there, so we talked about like people that you wish you could spend more time with. As we mentioned earlier, Chris and I are obsessed with I-244 and just sort of like how the federal highway system was in essence a... Just weaponized. A, yeah, it was weaponized against black people and minorities. Is there, do you have a like a, a hobby horse of a, a, a historical like weird thing that just you're fascinated with that you always try to bring up and everyone's just like, Okay, like it's not it's not interested in it the way you are interested in it. Like Chris is obsessed with the Oklahoma tax policy. I'm obsessed with the federal highway system. Like, what's your weird your weird history thing that you that you're obsessed with? I mean, I think the closest thing to that for me would probably be like the mechanics of urban renewal. I just got super invested in the mechanics of how it worked, and even like how it was originally decided. You know, and like for example, how. The original congressional uh, law as part of the war on poverty, there was this debate about whether or not they should. So they, they had to include citizen oversight in the program, right? And so there was this huge debate about whether citizen oversight would include like some kind of actual approval process by the citizens, or they'd just be like, oh, you had a board, so like you, you get you get you get your star, you can do what you want. And so I became very fascinated by that idea about like, oh, like these decisions made in Congress that ultimately sided with the more lax version, which means you can have a citizen oversight board, but they don't have any control. This very this like decision in Congress in like 1968 or 69 means that fast forward to like the city meeting, community meeting in 72, Green was just powerless. You know what I mean? And so I think I always like going back to those congressional decisions about urban policy. Cause I think often we learn a lot about what happens on the local level, because often there's like a big protest happening against the thing or whatever. But it's often these things going on, on the on the congressional side years or decades before that are being influenced by housing lobbies and all that kind of stuff that actually mm -hmm. decide what's going to be able to even be possible on a local level. So that's my, that's my wonky. Uh, I love it. My wonky yeah, answer. I love it. <laughs> well, look, look, you have something, uh, by the time this episode comes up, it comes out, there'll be, there'll be an announcement for people here locally in Tulsa um, in, involving you and your book. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. So the book came out in May and I've only had one event in uh, Tulsa so far, but I'm really excited to be able to say that 
There's going to be a series of additional events about Built from the Fire over the next year. I'm organizing a community book read, actually, that's going to be walking through the chapters and themes of the book in order. And so we'll be having events about, for example, um, the origins of racial violence we discussed a little bit, um, not only in Tulsa, but across America. Um, we'll be talking about the music scene in Greenwood and how thriving and exciting that was. Uh, much more about urban renewal, where I'll get back on my on my walk yeah. uh, platform for that one a little bit. So there's, there's going to be, and there's going to be at different locations. So one event will be at All Souls, the event uh, coming up very soon. Uh, there's going to be an event at the Big Ten Ballroom, which is a sort of restored um, black concert venue in North Tulsa. And uh, I saw at some of the colleges in town. So the series is called Deep Greenwood. Um, Deep Greenwood is actually a name that old timers in the neighborhood use for the business district. So Greenwood Avenue Archer Street was often called Deep Greenwood back in the day. But also we're going deep on Greenwood history. So, you know, it's a double, mm-hmm. uh, double entendre. And so... I'm really excited about the series. We're going to be announcing it on September 6th. And um, the first event is going to be at All Souls on September 28th at uh, 6.30. And that's going to, again, be about the history of racial violence, not only in Tulsa, but in places like Arkansas as well. And so if people want to learn more about it, if you go to the bookstores, they have all the information at Magic City and Fulton Street. Um, you can also go to University of Tulsa's website, which has a, a web portal with all the information about it. Um, or you can check out my newsletter, uh, runitback.substack.com, where I'll have all the information about the upcoming series. Are you going to talk about the sort of um, race massacre connection to All Souls while you're there at All Souls? Oh, yeah. That's the idea. Man, the history of All Souls is crazy. Yeah. Um, anyway, you'll have to go to the event to, to learn about that. Do you think we'll get a Built from the Fire 2 electric boogaloo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Rebuilt from the fire. That yes, was, rebuilt, that was, rebuilt that from the, the fire. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I can make that many more spreadsheets. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. But, Google's like, you've run out of space. We're sorry. Yeah. Uh, you can't store anything else here. I had to, I had to get the... I had to start paying for space on yeah. Google, actually. It's that much stuff. That's how they get you. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know if I'd be another book about Tulsa specifically, but I am very still interested in that. What I view is a hundred-year gap in general knowledge about black history between mm-hmm. the Civil War and Civil Rights Movement. So I have other ideas about other events that occurred in that era um, in our country, and I'd love to dive into something else with the same depth I brought to uh, Built from the Fire. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've thought about this, but I'm curious, what would a, I guess, a good pop culture depiction of the story of Greenwood look like? I mean, I know we've had some books written about it and some documentaries. Mm-hmm. So what would, you know, an actual like narrative version of it, what would that look like to you? Well, the self-interested answer is, Built from the Fire Limited series, <laughs> Ed Goodwin, who was the family patriarch of the Goodwins. You have John David Washington as a young Ed Goodwin, and Denzel as the old Ed Goodwin. <laughs> Netflix, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say the Max. I'm like, no, they don't get they don't get attention anymore. So. <laughs> um, so I think I think I mean I think I think whatever you do has to follow people is what I really say. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to see a people centered story about Greenwood. I think everything that's been depicted so far. Um, it's just about the massacre. It's fictionalized characters in the world of a Greenwood on fire. That's all I've ever right. seen in pop culture. So I want to say, who are these people actually? How do they build this place? Of course, what happened in 1921, but also how do they rebuild it? And also, what were their internal dynamics? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, to me, that's the, the the route to go. So we are talking about the, you know, I guess RIP HBO, but, you know, something in that prestige drama lane yeah. where really mm-hmm. diving into who these people were and the characters and all that kind of stuff. That's what I would want to see that really kind of, I think, captures the prestige Greenwood has in our minds. You know, Black yeah. Wall Street is really this prestigious jewel in the American imagination. So I think there could be a pop culture depiction that captures that. 
And then the ringer can do a podcast about it, and then you can go on and be a guest <laughs> on their podcast about the thing that you wrote. Oh, yeah. Um, Full circle. Yeah. yeah. Well, Victor, thank you so much. Um, you know, I'm, I look forward to, I look forward to these local events. And I look forward to just like seeing you, you know, bounce around the United States talking about this. Yeah. Thanks and, so much, guys. I really appreciated this. Yeah. And, and I know you shared your, um, uh, website, but anywhere else people can yes. follow, connect with you and see what you're up to. Oh yeah. I've posted about all of my tour events on my Instagram too. So that's VLUCK89, V-L-U-C-K 89. Um, theoretically I'm still on X at VLUCK, but who knows how long that'll last. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, my newsletter is really a great place to learn not only about my events, but sort of a behind the scenes perspective on how I put together my work. It's called Run It Back, and it's at uh, runitback.substack.com. Um, X, formerly known as Twitter, as how every news article has to refer to it as. Because <laughs> nobody knows. Because no, you, no one knows and no one cares. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Victor, again, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I hope, I, hope, I hope you had some fun in our conversation here. And uh, I'm excited to read more about your obsession with urban renewal. So. Oh, yeah, it's coming, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to our episode with Victor. Make sure to check out these amazing community events here in Tulsa in the next upcoming weeks. Obviously, buy his book if you haven't already. Join his Substack and follow him on social media. Speaking of social media, make sure to follow Pod for Good on Facebook, Instagram, Threads even, I think. Maybe TikTok. Occasionally I post a TikTok. And on Twitter, we're not calling it its new name. Its new name is stupid. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review if you can. Uh, As always, Telsa, get done. Broken Arrow, I haven't heard about you in a while, so get another pass. Be kind to one another. (laughs) 